This morning's uh, <coughs> Bible reading, as we continue in 1 John, we find ourselves in chapter 2, and we're going to be reading from verse 12 through to 17. So that's 1 John, chapter 2, and we're going to start from verse 12. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Verse 15. Do not, let, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of the Lord. Is that you or me? This is Graham, everybody. Give him a nice welcome. Graham, after the election, is it going to come to him? After the election, the result yesterday, Graham is now leaving the country tomorrow. True. Well, it's not true. true. It's true that you're leaving the country. Uh, where are you going? When are you going? Why are you going? What are you going to do when you get there? When are you coming back? Let's pray. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, as the pastor said, I'm leaving tomorrow for uh, that place where everyone wants to, uh, has a great desire to go to, Bangladesh. Uh, and uh, I'm going for two weeks and I'm looking forward to it, 40 degrees. Um, yeah, and I'm sweating now. <laughs> yeah, so what am I going to do there? Well, eat a lot of curry and rice. Uh, but other than that, I hope to do some internal auditing within the symbiosis organisation where they've asked me to look at some of the systems that they have and uh, we'll, um, we'll see if they comply with the various requirements of the various stakeholders. Uh, but before I get into the auditing, um, we'll begin the day with devotions and I have a few devotions prepared that if they want to listen to what I have to say, uh, we'll share together and uh, that would be a, a good time of sharing where it's, it's an open discussion. Um, so you raise an issue and they'll tell you what they think and you listen and, uh, and then you get an opportunity to to say what you may think about it. Yeah, so that should be good. Um, and then, uh, as you do when you go to a country like Bangladesh, I hope to find a good hairdresser to give me a haircut for less than $2, thank you. Um, yeah, so, uh, and that includes the head massage. So, um, that should be good. All right, um, but before I, I finish, how would I like you to pray? Well. Every day would be good, um, but uh, pray that I'll be used by God, particularly in the devotion time, 
the people that attend are the staff. Some are believers that you will all meet one day in heaven, while others are on the journey to come to a decision about Jesus. Pray that God will use me to open hearts and minds to him. Pray in the discussions I have with people that I'm used by God as well, even if we're talking about really exciting things like accounting, um, that God will use those times as well. And uh, pray that I'll be kept safe, particularly tomorrow in the aeroplane. I don't know how many COVID-positive people will be on the plane. I hope there'll be none. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, a little concern for me in a confined space for with the two flights about 12 hours. So, yeah, pray for that and that I'll be kept safe in Bangladesh amidst uh, all the millions that are, yeah, are on the street. Okay? And just before I finish, I just want to thank those who have put in their recyclable containers, bottles and cans, because so far this year from this church we've raised over $400 for symbiosis. So thank you very much. Wonderful. Stevie, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Graham and for the work of symbiosis. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that Graham has. We do pray, as he's requested, Lord, keep him safe on the plane, free of COVID and free of any other bugs and viruses floating around. We pray that you will help him to rest well, to recover quickly. And Lord, go before him in each of the devotional opportunities and each of the conversations that he has. May he be your instrument to achieve your purposes. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open the door for an opportunity for the word and for your word to do its work. We pray for Graham that you'll keep him safe in Bangladesh and that you'll bring him home safely and that you'll bless him and use him and bless his family. And remind us, Lord, each day to bring him before your throne. Protect him from the evil one's fiery darts. And Lord, we commit him now to you in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Bless you. Bless you. Uh, We're in 1 John chapter 2. Thank you, Tony, for reading the passage. For those who were watching on screen, you would have seen that it was in the beginning of it in John chapter 2. Uh, So it's we're in a different part of God's word at the end of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2, John's letter to several churches, probably the early church, who had been infested with this group of uh, false teachers that we call Gnostics. And he has outlined very clearly to the disciples what God requires of them. And at this point in his letter... um, There's a slight change in the the way that he writes, you can notice that, Um, but he um, has probably hit the pause button in order to go, I don't want to discourage you, I want to encourage you and I want you to be sure and certain of the faith that you have. So in the passage this morning, he's going to talk about God's family and he's going to describe us in three ways. So it's God's portraits, God's family portraits. And then he wants to give a very strong command, a very strong warning to this group of Christians. First, he encourages them uh, by what he has said and is going to say to them, and then to challenge them. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you that we can be together. 
Bless us, Lord, as we look to your word and bless our folks at home listening online. And we do ask, Lord, for you to raise up other people to help that this uh, ministry and word might continue to be broadcast for others to hear. But most importantly this morning, Lord, we pray you'll speak to us and we ask and pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, this is going to be interesting. I can't do two things at once. Here are the, here's the passage, Twelve to, it falls into two parts. There are three phases for us as God's family that we grow in, and we'll come to that in a moment. And there are three foes that we as followers of the Lord Jesus have while we live in the body, while we live in this world. The three phases that John talks about are children, fathers, and youth. I don't know why he does it in that order. Um, I can give you a suggestion. I am writing to you, dear children. I am writing to you, fathers, and I am writing to you, young men, or youth. It's generic. Um, Firstly, does he mean physical ages? Well, he might. If so then it's encouraging, I think, that the New Testament is acknowledging the presence of children in the church and they are referred to. That's if it's physical ages. The most common view, and probably my view, is that he's really talking about spiritual ages. People who are children in the faith, people who are fathers in the faith, people who are in between that, people who are uh, young adults in the faith, if you like. That's how I understood it. There is another view which says, because John, who is now quite elderly, you know, he's in his 90s. And um, so to him, everybody is a child. So he writes in his letter continually referring to children, dear children. He does it in the beginning of every chapter and does it a couple of times in the chapter. So it's quite possible that here that when he says children, I write to you, dear children, he's talking to everybody. In which case, then, is just dividing Christ followers into two groups. Those who are fathers, those who are mature, those who um, have grown up in the Lord Jesus and been following him for a long time, and he's writing to those who are young in the faith. That's also possible. It doesn't make a lot of difference which particular way you go on it, Um, but I'm going the way of its children, fathers and youth in terms of our spiritual maturity. He says in verse 12... I am writing to you. Just as an aside, it's an academic point which I think is interesting and you'll probably go, who cares? Oh, well, God bless you. He says in the present tense, I am writing to you. When you get down to verse 14, he says, I write to you. And it's interesting, verse 13 becomes a transition point. Right up until chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, right up until chapter 2, verse 13, I am writing to you. Chapter 2, verse 14 on to the rest of the letter. I have written to you. Is that important? Well, no, but it's academically interesting, isn't it? Oh, not for some. One very creative commentator suggested that what happened is that John had been writing, I am writing to you up until verse 13, then got interrupted, puts his pen down, he goes away and does something. And he comes back and he rereads the letter and he picks it up and he says, from now on, oh, I've written to you. That's an interruption in his letter. There is a reason for it, and I haven't been able to pursue that enough this week, uh, to find out why John changes his language, except to say that it's rather typical of John. He, he is a very clever author and he does like variety. 
And sometimes it would appear he likes variety for variety's sake. Anyway, let's move on. I, I am writing to you, dear children. Why? Two reasons. Firstly, in verse 12, because your sins have been forgiven. Have been, are being, and will be. They've all gone. And notice it says, on account of him. This is going to be awkward. On account of him. Not because of us, not because of our character or our reputation. Not because we deserve it. Not because of anything we have done. It's because of him. It's because of what he did. It's on account of his name and for the honour of glory of his name that he saved us and he offers us forgiveness. As somebody said to me last week, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. Spurgeon, wasn't it? No, it's actually John Edwards. Oh, no, you're right. Josh told me that at the end of last service. I thought it was a great quote. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. We are the recipients of salvation. That's true of all believers. And it's particularly because that's how we start our faith. Last week I also made a point and got some emails. Thank you for those. Most of them are encouraging. Had some conversations with people, so that was interesting. Got some texts from people saying thanks. It's nice to be, you know, slapped around a bit every now and again. Last week, I tried making the point very strongly about who or what is a Christian. It's a huge theological debate that went on about 20 years ago, and we're still in the aftermath of it. And I am on one side of that very clearly, and I'm opposed to the other side of it. So depending on what side you're on. And last week, I tried saying, what's a Christian? A Christian is somebody who believes, who receives, and who obeys. Remember this? And last week, I said it incorrectly. I should have been more, it was clear in here, it wasn't clear coming out here. So I just want to modify it just slightly. A Christian is a person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died and that he rose again from the dead. A Christian is a person who has received him as a saviour, prays the prayer of forgiveness and receives Jesus. And a Christian is a person who obeys Jesus as Lord. Agreed? <coughs> All three of you, thank you. That's great. Last week I said... If I believe Jesus is the Son of God and believe he died and rose again, am I a Christian? No. If I receive him as my saviour, am I a Christian? And last week I said no. How do you become a Christian? You've got to believe and receive. As soon as you receive him, you're a child of God, correct? This is the mistake that I made. How is that evidenced in your life? You obey. What is the indication that you are saved? Obedience. Not profession of faith. Not saying Jesus is Lord. Not saying it. Doing it. That was my point last week. And so the little mistake that I made was, well, a person becomes a potential Christian at the point of receiving Jesus. Correct? We'll come to that. So... I just want to give an apology to Andrew Pierce because I called him out on it in church and he's got thick skin. He'll be right. And he's not here today. The wuss. <laughs> I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven. John's trying to encourage the Christians. He's written rather strongly about people say this, but if they don't do that. 
and they could be discouraged if they analyse themselves. But John goes on to say, it all starts with the confession of our sin and receiving Jesus as our saviour. And then it goes on to, he says in verse 14, at the end of it, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. The second thing that is true for children in the faith is they know their sins are forgiven and they know God as their heavenly Father. They have come to know God personally. That's true of all believers. The Spirit of God witnesses with our spirit and therefore we cry, Abba, Father. You can call God your Father now because you belong to his family. Prior to that, you couldn't. Prior to becoming a believer, a follower, before you were born again, you could not call God Father because he's not your Father until you're a follower of the Lord Jesus. Spiritually speaking, who is your Father if you're not in Christ? Answer, Satan. It's a horrendous thought, isn't it? It's what Jesus says in John chapter 8. You were of your father, the devil. There are only two kingdoms, God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom in this world, spiritually speaking. You're either in one or the other. There is no fence in between. There is no grey. You're in the kingdom of light or you're in the kingdom of darkness. You can be a nice, moral, upright, religious person but still be in the kingdom of darkness, which is what John is going to challenge in this passage. So he writes to the children and he says two things about them. Your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. And one of my favourite verses, I think it's out of the Living Bible, or it's the New Living Translation but the very first edition, it's now in its second edition and they've changed it a little bit. Uh, Ephesians 3.12 says, um, now because of Jesus and our faith in him, we can now come fearlessly into God's presence, assured of his glad welcome. It's a beautiful verse. That's why I like it. Because of Jesus and our faith in him, we can now come into God's very presence, assured of his glad welcome. We, are never inter we never interrupt our Heavenly Father. He always is available for his children to come to him. I'm writing to you fathers. So he goes from the youngest in the faith now to the most mature in the faith, fathers. Because why? Well, because you know him. You've come to know him. You've known the one who was from the beginning, both the creator from the beginning of time, space and energy, the beginning of creation. But it could also be referring to the Lord Jesus. You've come, fathers, you've come to know Jesus, who is from the beginning, the incarnation. And you've known him. You know him personally. All Christians know the Lord Jesus. We might be at different levels and have different depths of understanding and knowledge about him but we all know him and he knows us this is what John's writing to these people remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 on judgment day he will say I never knew you call me Lord Lord but you don't do the things that I say those who do the will of my father in heaven are the ones who I know and then he writes to the youth I write to you young men generically to those who are in between, excuse me, they're not new believers and they're not mature believers yet, but they're heading that way. Number one, they are strong, not physically, but spiritually. Ephesians 6.10 says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. They're spiritually strong. And the reason they're spiritually strong is because the word of God abides in them, lives in them. They're people of the book. And all Christians are people of the book. And because they are spiritually strong and they are biblically obedient, therefore they walk in victory and you have overcome the evil one. It's the second time John says that to them. He says also in verse 13, you have overcome 
the evil one. The word of God is the nutrient to our spiritual strength. We say that I think nearly every week. You've got to read your Bible, study your Bible, learn your Bible, obey your Bible. The word of God is the sword of the spirit by which we defeat and overcome. Just like Jesus did in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan, it's the word of God that he quotes that gives him the victory. There's a magnificent hymn by Martin Luther called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And there's a line in that hymn that says, One little word will fell him, Satan. One little word. Just one verse, one word from God's word defeats the evil one. That's why James can write, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. It's preceded by submit to God, resist the devil. Result, he'll flee. Satan is a formidable foe, but he is defeatable. And so for those in whom the word of God dwells, they are the ones who are very well equipped to conquer in their spiritual walk. So here's the summary of what John says to these various levels, different ranks of followers of the Lord Jesus. One, our sins are forgiven. We know the Father. We know Jesus. We're to be strong in his word and we overcome the evil one, just like in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Reign in us. Your will be done. That's obedience. Provide for us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Very similar parallel concepts. Then in verses 15 to 17, the second paragraph, John moves on to give this, it's an imperative, but it's in the negative. Do not love the world or anything in the world. It's a very strong statement. Don't love the world or anything in the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. We have three foes in this life while we are in the body, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The first one is what John is emphasising at this point, the world. But when he says the world, what does he mean by it? What is the world? Because God made the world and God said the world is good. So it's not referring to creation. It's not referring to this planet. It's referring... And God also loved the world, loved it so much that he gave his only son to save it. So he's not talking about people. The world is not the planet, the physical creation. The world is not the people who are on it. And God, in fact, commands us to love the people who are on it, to love our enemies and to pray for them. So what does John mean by do not love the world? He doesn't mean avoid people. This phrase, this command has been greatly misunderstood through the centuries. The very early church, some people took the extreme view, don't love the world means I'll have nothing to do with the world, and they became ascetics. They withdrew from the world. That's where monasteries came from and so on. The more withdrawn I am from the world and having nothing to do with people, then the more I love God. That's how they understood it and, in fact, misunderstood it. John doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean to avoid people. I've told you about a brethren lass in my previous church in last century and how when she went to work, she was raised a Christian in a Christian home, but raised with that mentality. <coughs> have to be isolated, segregated, have nothing to do with the world. In fact, you only have a Christian mechanic and a Christian dentist and a Christian doctor and a Christian school teacher. You surround yourself with Christians and you only watch Christian TV 
you only listen to Christian radio and you only read Christian books and Christian newspapers, then you'll be not loving the world. He doesn't mean that. God made the world. God loves the world. So what does he mean by the world? Well, he all, nor does he mean you don't have to worry about the environment. Don't love the world. I couldn't care less about the world. Pollution is a wonderful thing. It's a sign of progress. He doesn't mean that. Nor does he mean that we should reject all modern inventions or anything else. That we should resist medical treatment. Some people have understood him to mean that. That we shouldn't have a car or a TV or a phone. We don't need to submit to government authorities because they're part of the world. We don't have to believe science because it's all worldly. Or we only do business with fellow Christians. He doesn't mean any of that. Well, what does he mean? The world that John is talking about, he's going to explain it for us with three words in a moment, three phrases. But the world he's talking about is the, Satan, is the world of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. It's an organisation, it's a system, and it's an attitude of people who are opposed to God, who people want to live without God. That world. Don't love that attitude. Don't love that. Love the sinner but not their attitude towards sin. This world is in the grip of Satan. It's people who oppose God, who ignore God, who seek to live without him. Um, into this world that John is talking about, it's the kingdom of Satan that refuses to acknowledge God as king and despises anyone else who does. This world is under the control of the evil one, John says in chapter 5, verse 19. So the world is a place of darkness where God is not welcome, not recognised, not wanted. In fact, God is hated, abandoned and defied. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Now this is where there's a spiritual battle going on for us. And don't think only about the really bad people. This is... Anybody who is not a follower of the Lord Jesus is in that world and part of that world. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, that's the world, comes not from the Father but from the world. And if you think about those expressions, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Lust is... A good desire which is taken to an extreme where you become dominated by the desire and not living according to that which is appropriate or godly. The lust of the flesh is the lust of our old sinful nature. It's me wanting to do what I want to do and it's within me. It's within all of us. It's still present in us. The Bible talks about the old man or the flesh or our sinful nature. That's what this is referring to. And if we give in to that, if we are dominated by our physical senses then we are in cahoots with the world. We, the lust of the eyes is that which is without. Lust of the flesh is within, lust of the eyes are without. It's all around us. And Satan's a master at this, to attract us, to distract us, to, whether it's a lustful eye of a sensual nature, whether it's a greedy gaze or whether it's dressing to impress. It's following the treasures, the riches, the possessions of this world. 
Satan wants our eyes wide open to all of these attractions and we can be distracted by them. The pride of life is the worst one of all because it's the worst sin of all. This is what got Satan right way back in the beginning. The pride of life is that which generally craves glory. God is the one who wants, deserves glory. We are the one who want to not give it to him. We want it for ourselves. That's what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. It's when we thirst for honour or applause or fame, prestige, positions, power, preeminence. It's a disease of the year, if you like. It's we love to be flattered with admiration and praise. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from God. You see, God gives us good desires and God wants us to enjoy life. Satan wants us to take our desires and to use them to an extreme, to abuse them, to go too far with them, to not control them. And he wants us not simply to indulge, uh, to enjoy life, he wants us to overindulge in life and to forget about the next life. Focus on this life. I wonder where you are in the midst of all of this. Well, John's going to give us a couple of reasons why we shouldn't do it. He says, firstly, don't love the world or anything in the world. Why? If anyone loves the world, and firstly, then love for the Father is not in them. Love for the world, worldliness, living for this life to the exclusion of God, is not from God himself. It's incompatible for us to say, I love God, and also to say, I love the world, or to make choices that reveal that. You can't have God as your spouse and still have the world as a mistress came across this quote. I wanted to read it to you. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to this morning. This guy, Alan, says, if you were married, do you remember the day you proposed? Yep. Do you? Never forget it. End of my life. My old life. You declared your love and you asked her to be your wife. Suppose she responded like this. Yes, I'll marry you, I'll live with you, I'll work beside you, but you need to know from the outset that I love somebody else. You must allow me to continue my love for him. How would you respond to that? You'd be speechless. Well, you would also be the world's biggest idiot if you went ahead and married her. Imagine how Jesus feels when we say, I will serve you, I'll go to church, I'll read the Bible, I'll pray daily and I'll do my best. But you must remember, I love the world. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And that's how John's wanting to paint it for us. It's black and it's white. It's Jesus, yes, the world, no. And in the world is myself. Myself, no. But loving and obeying him. So why shouldn't we love the world, John says, because, well, it's incompatible with the world. And then in verse 17 he says, and the world and its desires is passing away. It's temporary. There is no future in worldliness. This world is fallen, fading, and it will soon be forgotten. Would you invest in a business that was about to go out of business? Of course not. The best things in life are not things. The best things in life are not things. The best things in life is knowing Jesus, having a relationship with him, because it goes on forever. Getting your sins forgiven, walking with him. Remember the parable of the, the rich fool who 
invested in building new silos and by that very night he died. So there are lots of very wealthy people in our world and very poor people who are making the same theologically bad choice. They're investing in this life and this life only. They're not living for the next life. It's a waste of time, energy and resources. And none of it will go to the afterlife. But John writes that there is an alternative. The world and its desires is passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We belong to the next world. If you're on the winning team, would you swap teams in the last quarter? Of course not. Well, so too. We are to, as followers of the Lord Jesus, to continue to pursue him passionately, to obey him and to give up, potentially, the things of this world, the things of this life. Does that mean we can't have possessions, we can't drive nice cars, have a nice house? No, it doesn't mean any of that. can't remember his name. Um, missionary guy. Went to South America. Makes a comment and he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. All of the possessions and things I own at the moment, I can't keep. I don't take them with me. So if I give from that, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, riches and rewards in heaven. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. In a moment we're going to pause to ponder, but Lloyd-Jones concludes his message on this. He says, true Christians know that their new birth is more important than their natural birth. That true wealth are the riches in glory not the treasures of this world only. That the most important knowledge they seek and aspire to is the knowledge of God and not just knowledge of things in this world. The associations um, that they most seek and appreciate are not those found in noble circles, but it's the people of God, fellowshipping with fellow saints, the church. The honour they crave is not the honour of a, a great name in this life among people, but the honour of knowing, serving and pleasing God. These are the very opposite of what the world seeks. We need to be reminded of this, and that's why John reminds the early Christians. Because we live in this world where there is so much attraction, so much temptation, it's so easy for us to give in. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, infects all of us. What's the antidote? The glory of God, focusing on him. There was a song written 100 years ago, 1922. I'm going to sing it for you. Oh, that would be the lust of the flesh. I better not. The song says this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants you to not focus on the Lord Jesus. He wants you to focus on yourself, this world, what other people have got. You're being distracted. 
don't love the world or the things of the world, but love the Father and his Son. Let's pray. Well, let's bow together first. Let me give you 30 seconds thinking time. What did God say to you? What is God saying to you? What do you need to do? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came into our world to save us and that you prayed for us. You prayed to the Father not to take us out of the world but to keep us from the evil one and from being worldly, to be used by you in this fallen world to reach others with your gospel. We know, Lord that the world is our foe, we know it in our heads. And sometimes the world is so friendly and sometimes in some places it's got a frowning face. But the reality is that we don't belong to the world. Help us not to misspend our life but rather to surrender it and dedicate it to serving and honouring you every day. Forgive us, Lord, when we stumble. Forgive us when we make a wrong choice. Forgive us when we give in to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Forgive us. Cleanse us. Fill us with your spirit and clothe us in your righteousness that we might walk as children of light in this dark world. We ask and pray this. In the name of Jesus. And everyone said? May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen. God bless everybody. Um, the kids down at Kids Church took some umbrellas. Um, I think they took mainly their own, but there might be one or two that have gone missing. They'll be back. God bless. Have a dry week. From the graves that I found in you And Lord, I've come to know as I see and he will be stripped away by the power of your love hold me close let your love surround to your